Welcome to Sports with Chris Rawl. I am Chris Rawl, and I indeed will be talking about sports. On today's show, how narratives in sports are rarely a clear reflection of the truth. This show is available in video and audio form. In video form, please go to our YouTube channel. You can find it under the name CEO.com. This show is there as a playlist. There are other shows alongside it. Please like, please subscribe. Please comment. All of those things will help us as we get off the ground and running. If you'd prefer to listen to this strictly as a podcast, go and search for the term sports with Chris Rawl. You can find it on any podcast platform of your choosing. Do the same thing. Subscribe, like, leave a review, leave a rating, all of the good stuff. Now, on to the show. I want to give you one reason why gambling should be legal everywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, in two days from now, it is week zero of college football. I'm almost ready to cry because I'm so happy that the one thing we all desire in the bottom of our hearts has returned to us. Saturday night, we have the New Mexico State Aggies playing against the UTEP Miners. It is a toilet bowl of all toilet bowls. I'm taking New Mexico State plus 10. It is truly the beefiest of matchups between the beefiest of teams. New Mexico State, they might be the worst team in FBS football. The UTEP Miners, they cannot be that far behind. They're always constantly down at the bottom of the toilet. Join me. Let us swirl down the toilet together. We'll be watching on Saturday night. All will be well in the world again. We have our reason why gambling should be legal everywhere because it will place happiness in your heart as you watch the worst FBS team in existence try to lose by less than 10 points to the UTEP Miners. And now, sports with Chris Rawl. Brace yourselves because we are going to be talking about the most dreaded word in the world of sports today. Narrative. Boom, 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 boom. Everybody shudders when they hears it, when they hear the word for good reason, because narrative um, and especially warp narrative has really found a place of popularity as hot take culture has kind of caught fire over the last decade. Uh, that has come into the world of sports that exists within the world of politics and many other places. Uh, it's pretty much the idea that if people see something talked about enough or screamed about enough, then it starts to become reality. It's kind of this ongoing battle, narrative versus reality. And you think those two things are the same thing. And many times they are not. It's how people like Skip Bayless or Stephen A. Smith have made a living, actually made exorbitant amounts of money uh, by shaping narrative in a way that stimulates the highest level of reaction getting on television or on a podcast and screaming and shouting at the top of your lungs that Aaron Rodgers is atrocious at football or LeBron James, he's terrible at basketball or any small market team, they're garbage and there's no way they could win a title. It's the easiest way to create immediate reaction, right? You pour gasoline on everything, you light a match, you toss it on, you watch the world burn. That's kind of the hot take culture, which has transformed this narrative experience that has always existed within sports because one of the enjoyable things is tracing narrative over a long period of time. It's kind of consumed that and warped it into a place that I personally don't love. And I think some other people feel the same way. Uh, Every so often, some of my friends or people who know me and know that I like sports or certain athletes or teams, they'll come to me and they'll present me with one of these Skip Bayless takes, you know, and they'll say, did you hear what Skip said on 
Fox Sports about Aaron Rodgers yesterday, and I always go, no, why would I have – I don't listen to this. I don't watch it. Why would I even talk about it? Uh, what's the point of discussing something that is very obviously coming from a place of inauthenticity and very obviously not rooted in reality? To sit here in present day and try to discuss why LeBron James could be bad at basketball or Aaron Rodgers is bad at football, I just don't understand why I would ever do that. Right, It goes contrary to everything that I love about consuming sports, um, about watching the games, about gobbling up information, whether reading or listening or viewing videos, and then understanding what all of that means to me or to you when you go through that process on your own. Um, when people come from that place, a place of honest feeling and authenticity and, and present a case or an argument or a thought that pertains to the world of sports, I can consume that and talk about it all day, every day. That is, again, one of the things that I truly do love about sports. So when I look around the landscape and I see that narrative, it's rarely a clear reflection of truth, I find this to be a source of frustration. Again, based upon the way that I understand and consume uh, this world of sports that I care about dearly. Uh, part of this narrative versus reality battle, part of this narrative as uh, rarely a clear reflection of the truth, uh, it, it comes into play when events happen that actually happen, uh, but then they're kind of shoehorned into a particular narrative. Because I think a lot of time within the hot take culture or within just the world of sports narratives in general, we don't necessarily want to change. And so we take an event and we shoehorn it to fit a narrative that we've always believed for years and years and years, rather than just looking at things clearly and going, what does this actually mean? I want to talk about Tom Brady for a little bit, because I think the way that Tom Brady is covered kind of fits into this category, um, regarded as the ultimate winner. And everybody loves this idea because he's quarterback teams that have won at unprecedented levels within the NFL. The dude has seven Super Bowl rings. He's made 10 appearances. Um, even though I've watched his entire career and all of these Super Bowls, I still can't fully wrap my head around those numbers. They're truly astounding, right? Um, and alongside that, has Brady been a great quarterback? Absolutely. Um, are his leadership skills up there with anybody who's pretty much played football? Absolutely, right? And so all of these things I believe to be truthful. Um, but the way that I've kind of consumed his career is different from how most people consume his career because I always love examining the sport of football and the position of quarterback in a way that goes contrary to just if you win your quarterback is good if you lost your quarterback is bad cut and dry as simple as that I like looking and saying okay well Brady's career this is a really good examination of what happens when you have a great quarterback and then also when you get every single break necessary in order to win again and again and again. Now, when I say breaks, I don't just mean random chance. I mean self-created breaks by the organization. That's a huge, huge piece, which we've seen within Brady's career, whether that's coaching and scheme. Uh, Bill Belichick, best football coach of all time in New England. Josh McDaniels on the offensive side there, one of the best offensive coordinators in the game. That's a huge boost. Last year in Tampa Bay, when Brady makes that shift, he's got Bruce Arians. Byron Leftwich on that offensive side, awesome. Todd Bowles, catalyst of that defense, awesome. Those are self-created breaks within the organization. Um, making smart hires, 
and then turning them loose. Another thing that's very, very, very big piece of winning in football, talent accumulation and fit, uh, which both of the organizations he has played for have done that very, very nicely. Fit is probably more pertinent in New England. At times, they've had really stacked rosters, uh, whether that was grabbing Randy Moss and Wes Welker in that 2007 offense that ended up losing to the Giants in the Super Bowl. But more times than not, it was about the first piece of that puzzle, uh, Bill Belichick, grabbing talent that you wouldn't look at as otherworldly when the roster is listed from top to bottom. But in the context of how Belichick utilizes players, that's a Super Bowl winner. In in Tampa Bay last year, it was more about the accumulation. Tampa Bay already had a loaded roster. Jameis was kind of dragging it down with his 30 touchdown, 30 interception shtick. Brady came in and Tampa Bay even made more moves. They said, yeah, we have a loaded wide receiver room, but let's just grab Antonio Brown. We don't know how he's going to fit, but Let's just keep getting talent. Uh, we have a loaded tight end room. We got Cameron Bray. We got OJ Howard. Let's just grab Rob Gronkowski. It's never going to hurt to have more talent in the sport of football. And then another thing that ties into organization and those self-created breaks, it's just milking every possible edge in ways that we know, whether that's Spygate with the Patriots when they're illegally taping teams practices over the course of years and years and years. And then Roderick Dale's burning the tapes. We don't fully know what happened there. Whether that's Deflategate when Brady's inflating balls to levels that we may or may not think is illegal. Who knows what's going on with that? But it's just getting yourself in a place where you can have every tiny sliver of an edge, even if it's a point zero 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 one percent edge, willing to do that. Uh, Seth Wickersham and Don Vanatta, they write a big piece about the Patriots a few years back. And they're talking about this kind of idea of creating breaks that you can't really even comprehend unless you hear them. One of them was... Opposing coaches' headsets would periodically go out when they would go and play in New England. Um, They reported Mike Tomlin talking about that when he's coaching Pittsburgh. It's all of these things. Some of them that we know and probably a lot that we don't know if all of these things were going on, right? It's creating an edge in some way, shape, or form in order to win a football game and in order to try and win a championship. Those things we understand within an organization. And then other things that go into this, again, all of this stuff is outside the periphery of a quarterback. The other stuff that exists that you have to have that is not controllable, well, those things pile up too. Whether that starts with his very first Super Bowl run, uh, the tuck game against Oakland, Charles Woodson comes in, strip sack, it looks like the game's going to be over, Oakland recovers, they're going to take a knee, no wait, we have this weird rule that nobody knows about, it's called the tuck rule, this is how it's interpreted, it means he's pumping in the pocket, And that's actually not a fumble, even though everybody on planet Earth thinks it's that. That's how the dynasty begins. Um, And it goes down the list. There's a million different things I could talk about, whether it's D. Ford lining up offsides in the AFC title game on a game-clinching interception for Kansas City. He doesn't affect the play or doesn't affect the play in any way, shape, or form. But the refs throw a flag and they go, you're lined up offsides by a sliver of an inch. And now the game is still going. Tampa Bay scores, goes to overtime. Or not Tampa Bay. New England scores, goes to overtime. New England wins in overtime. They go on to beat the Rams in the last Super Bowl victory for Brady and Belichick in New England. Um, It's Adam Vinatieri making every clutch field goal ever put in front of him throughout his entire New England career. It's as simple as last year, Packers-Tampa Bay in the NFC title game when Matt LaFleur decides to kick a field goal with the clock dwindling. The Packers down eight rather than going for it on fourth and goal. All these things, they're not really controllable, but they factor into how a team wins or loses, right? And so the marriage of all of these things, quarterback, 
breaks within an organization and breaks just floating around in the ether that are determined by chance, fate, whatever you want to call it. The marriage of all these things has created winning at incomprehensible levels within Brady's career in the NFL, a sport that is very, very hard to win even once in, much less seven times, much less make the Super Bowl 10 times. Okay. So we take a pause there and where myself and the narrative, the traditional narrative kind of diverge is that the traditional narrative has morphed into in this sport where a million different things factor into winning and losing. Brady is the be all end all, right? Uh, He's the only thing that matters. Quarterback, it's the position of most importance. Brady, he's won seven Super Bowls and, and made 10 more. And so that's the only thing that matters. He's the ultimate winner. He's the best player ever. All of these things. Uh, and that's the talking point coming out of every single championship, much to the chagrin of somebody like me who, while acknowledging, yes, he's an awesome quarterback and he plays a role in a lot of these Super Bowl wins. Uh, but at the same time, I want to talk about quarterbacks in the context of everything that influences a football game, 95% of it, which is just out of control of the quarterback. And so the popular narrative is Brady dominates the day, ultimate winner again, And I watch and go, that doesn't necessarily match up with a lot of what I am seeing and a lot of the information that I am consuming. So this was the case when Tampa Bay beat Kansas City in the most recent Super Bowl. Game that I watched um, and was truly blown away by, but for a much different reason than what Tom Brady and the Buccaneers were doing on offense. Because I watched that game and Tampa Bay's defense in general and specifically their defensive front, it was a jaw-dropping performance. I want to read something about that game. It comes from Kevin Clark of The Ringer. The story of the game was the Bucks' fast defense speeding past a banged-up, makeshift Chiefs offensive line. In short, Mahomes wasn't himself because he didn't have the time to be. Mahomes was pressured 29 times, a Super Bowl record, and ran a total of 497 yards behind the line of scrimmage to avoid the Bucks' pass rush. Todd Bowles' defense accomplished that despite blitzing far less than usual, and it worked because the Bucks' front was able to put near-constant pressure on Mahomes, while the defensive backs and linebackers did their jobs behind them. End quote. So why I bring this up is because after this game... It followed a very similar pattern when it comes to this reality versus narrative and the way that narrative a lot of times doesn't necessarily reflect the truth that I personally am watching. Uh, Everybody would come up and say, I can't believe this Tom Brady performance. And that's all anybody wanted to talk about. Tom Brady, Tom Brady, Tom Brady. And it didn't match up with the story of the game, which was the pretty much consensus best player in the NFL, Patrick Mahomes being shut down by this relentless pass rush. Dominican Sue, Vita Vea, Jason Pierre-Paul, Shaq Barrett, they're just coming again and again and again. 29 times they pressured Mahomes. Also, almost an incomprehensible stat while we're talking about that. And it was about this scheme that Bulls put into place and said, okay, if we can generate relentless pressure with this front, well, we can always have seven people sitting back in coverage. And if Mahomes has no time, There's no amount of arm talent and elusiveness on planet Earth, part of that which was hampered by Mahomes having turf toe, that is going to save the day for Kansas City. So this incredible offense that when they're humming seems like there's no possible way to stop them. They were 
obliterated in the Super Bowl. It was the story of the game, right? Uh, Kevin Clark's line in there, it's the perfect synopsis of that Super Bowl. Mahomes wasn't himself because he didn't have the time to be. And yet the discussion coming out of the game for a lot of the media that I was consuming and for a lot of people within my life, it was decidedly not that. It was Brady, 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 Brady. That was the consensus narrative. Brady is everything, which is merely a sliver in the grand scheme of that win and that playoff run. Uh, the run that included Brady throwing three interceptions in the NFC title game against Green Bay or throwing for 200 yards against New Orleans the week prior. Uh, and and all of that was decidedly less important than what Bulls and the defense were doing in all of those games and especially within that Super Bowl victory over Kansas City. That's one example of kind of how this works in today's landscape. It's maddening to me and it's one that I always kind of am circling around and going, why do we consume stuff in this way and why are we so willing to go along with something that I think is not necessarily a clear reflection of the truth. And I've seen another example of that. Actually, I see examples of that all the time, but another really prominent example of that within the recent past. It's Chris Paul and his run to the NBA Finals, ultimately ending in a loss, and the narrative that Chris Paul is a loser, which I've also recorded shows about in the past. Uh, Chris Paul himself, prior to Game 5 of the NBA Finals, he said this. At the end of the day, I always say, Nobody cares about your story unless you win it, end quote. Now I hear that, and I'm sure that Chris Paul does believe that. Nobody cares about your story unless you win. And it feeds directly into the narrative machine that exists in present day within the world of sports. Uh, Obviously, I do not abide by this mindset as many shows that I record are about. Uh, Winning is not anything, and winning is very rarely a clear reflection of the truth when it comes to an individual player, much like narratives. So after the finals, Phoenix goes down in six games. They were up 2-0 in that series. Common stat that's passed around. Chris Paul, he's blown four different 2-0 leads in the playoffs. Not his team, Chris Paul, the individual, right? Which, if you look at that in a vacuum, it is true. Teams that Chris Paul has played for have had 2-0 leads in the playoffs four different times and lost those series. And this was passed around after the finals ended Uh, because it fit nicely into that pre-existing narrative that a lot of people really love, which is Chris Paul is a loser. Chris Paul is a choker. Uh, He is not equipped to win an NBA title. Oh, here we have another example of it, right? Um, And so when this stat is passed around, a person who has followed Chris Paul's career like I have, said, okay, that is true, but it's not coming. That stat is not a clear reflection of A, Chris Paul's capabilities of winning, and also just a clear reflection of the role that Chris Paul played in this and how each of these series went. Because you always need context when it comes to narrative and the way that it's talked about in the public uh, viewpoint, if you will. 2008, first one, Chris Paul, very young in his career, on the Hornets. They're playing San Antonio Spurs in round two. Uh, Spurs have won the NBA title the year prior. The Hornets, they're underdogs in that series. Great, awesome, hard-fought series. Hornets actually have home court in the second round. The first six games, they're all blowouts. Home court team, hold, serve, hold, serve, hold, serve. Comes down to game seven, San Antonio wins. At the time, I looked at it as this is a great, great, great step forward for Chris Paul, the player, 
and, and also the Hornets. This is they're building up their playoff scars. They're going to learn from this. And they also took a championship-winning team down to the wire in Game 7. That is a great accomplishment. That's how we looked at it, right? You go to 2013, the next time that Chris Paul or a Chris Paul-led team had a 2-0 lead in a series that they lost against the Grizzlies. Now in that series, Blake Griffin, he suffers a high ankle sprain in Game 5, which severely limits his impact in that game. And in Game 6, when they end up losing, that is a very large piece to that puzzle. One that you need to understand before you can just say, Chris Paul blew a 2-0 lead in 2013. That is a big piece to it. 2016, same thing happens. Against the Portland Trailblazers, Clippers, they go up 2-0. What happens in Game 4? Blake Griffin, he re-injures his quad, which he had had problems with that whole season. He's out for the rest of the series. Chris Paul, he breaks his hand that same game. He's out for the rest of the series. So in a 2-2 series with Game 5 in Los Angeles, their two best players are gone. They lose that. They lose Game 6. And we have another 2-0 lead that was blown by a Chris Paul-led team. But just those simple words don't necessarily tell the actual story of how it played out. And then in the NBA Finals, um, Phoenix goes up 2-0. Milwaukee comes storming back. You have these really tight, hard-fought games that go in Milwaukee's favor. The Giannis block. Giannis alley-oop. I mean, you all remember how that series played out. Now, by the time it was game six and Milwaukee was closing them down, I think the general feeling was Milwaukee is the best team in the series and they deserve to win. Giannis is the best player in the series and he deserves to win. And that's not necessarily a knock that he is a better player in present day than 36-year-old Chris Paul. That was my own perception and understanding of what I watched. Chris Paul, could he have done things better in games three and four of that series? Absolutely. Absolutely. No doubt about it. At the same time, uh, he had a great playoff run. He did a lot of great things within the NBA Finals, including in games one and two and six. And my feeling coming out of that was, well, he came very close to winning a championship and just the breaks of the game didn't necessarily go there. And Giannis, Giannis was the story of this series. Uh, he made the true star turn that we're always waiting for individual players to make. And that's what happened. So you hear me talk about all these things and... There are two things that are true. One, Chris Paul-led teams have blown four different 2-0 series leads. But two, also true, a lot of these things were not necessarily his fault. And even the ones that were in some way, I don't think that they're a black mark on his resume and signify that he is a choker or he is a loser. And in fact, he actually played quite well in a lot of these playoff losses throughout his career. So these are just two examples in a trillion that happen all the time that are swirling around the world of sports when it comes down to narrative and how it is shaped and how that's not necessarily always rooted in reality or a clear reflection of the truth. Um, You speak something enough, as we've seen with popular figures in the media or even within your own personal interactions with other fans in your life, and it can become the truth for many, many, many people. It's the most frustrating part of consuming sports and wanting to talk about them in 2021. Uh, So many different narratives exist within this warped reality. So the only antidote that I have personally, the one that I believe in wholeheartedly, it's consuming information, it's watching games, and most importantly, don't be afraid to think for yourself.